So this morning I'd like to speak about the importance of recognizing our natural human goodness and the place of joy in relationship to that and practice. I remember myself as a young adult in my, I guess, late teens, early 20s, very much gripped by and wrestling with a question that I couldn't resolve insofar as it seemed to me that that human beings were essentially something good, something wholesome. And yet when I observed the actions, and not just of others, but equally of myself at times, it didn't somehow seem to follow as though that was accurate. The amount of greed and selfishness, the amount of violence and anger that could be seen in the world and that at times I experienced in myself somehow seemed to negate this underlying sense I have of, and I had at that time, of, of goodness. And it, it was a source of great confusion and, in fact, great pain for me, I remember very clearly. And it was as if I had to somehow, the reality of what I encountered in the world or in myself seemed to somehow be requiring or demanding of me that I abandon this perception or this sense that I had of the essential goodness of human beings and of life. And the prospect of abandoning that was was something deeply painful. It seemed like it would take away the meaningfulness of much of what I wished my life to be about. And I had a very remarkable and fortunate experience when I, um, having sort of managed to survive a few years at university and not quite survive a couple of years of professional life and sort of escaped pretty much the only way I can put it. I was uh, on the road and uh, travelling and bumped into someone who, in the course of our conversation, told me something that really helped me understand what was going on. And it's really a long and rather, for me, sweet story, but I'll save you the details of it since otherwise I'll be talking rather too long this morning. Um, But essentially what this woman, her name was Sarah, what she told me in the course of a conversation that went for many hours between us, and what she helped me to see was that the quality of awareness, that capacity to see what's really going on, is not something that we have access to necessarily. That although we may have a goodness of heart, our actions are not necessarily guided by that. And that there is an incredible variance in the degree of awareness that human beings have access to. And in accordance with that, an incredible variance in the actions that we, that we perform in life. That we don't necessarily see what it is that we're doing and its effect. Although at other times, of course, it is incredibly obvious to us and painfully so. And for me it was a great relief because it was the the key that allowed me to resolve the apparent conflict in my deep sense of goodness and the very clear experience of the world in which so much action was being undertaken that caused harm all around me and within me at times. So there's a, a question this invites or that this brings forth for me and I think it's a crucial question in terms of spiritual practice is what happens when we examine our own experience? Do we really see why it is that we act as we do? 
Do we see what moves us in the very heart and the core of our being? Because to me, it's quite clear that in fact everything that we do, that's everything that I do and that I've ever done, is an attempt to take care of and serve and support the well-being of myself or others or things that I care for, that I value, that I love. Now, some of the ways in which I try and do it and which I see other people try and do that don't really have that effect. But that is the underlying intention. That is where it comes from. But often through the distortions of of blindness and confusion, of fear and reactivity, the actions that are trying to take care, in fact, have the opposite effect. Seeing this for myself is something that's been really important. In fact, I would say transformative in my own life. And if it's not something you've reflected on, it's something I would invite you at some point, perhaps, if not now, to take a little time and reflect on. Where is it that all the action of your life comes from? What is it that really moves you to do what you do, whether skillful or unskillful? Is it not, in the end, because we care? And although we have to acknowledge that we cause harm, and we do, I have, I seek to minimize it, but I continue to do it at times. To acknowledge that with a sense of humility and perhaps an appropriate remorse, and yet not taking that reality or that acknowledgement as any basis for denying the underlying aspiration and intentionality, which I equally see in trust in myself. And hope that you can see and trust in yourselves the, the intentionality to, to actually care for. That in our core, at the heart of what it is that we are, there is caring. I was recently um, speaking with a retreatant who attended the, uh, the eight-day retreat I was teaching here in the last week of October and we arranged to have a telephone conversation the following week just to follow up some of what she was working with. And uh, it's a very useful form of engagement. And in the process of our exploration together, at some point she was describing the intensely painful and in a way grievous sense of contraction and separation that she sometimes found herself lost in and acknowledging or seeing how it was something she was doing to herself as a contraction. And that in that, there was a point where she suddenly realized, I'm doing it because I'm afraid. And the immediate conclusion that came from that was, I'm doing it because I'm afraid. She said, I'm not bad. As if it was a shock and a surprise to her that she wasn't bad. And this is someone actually with quite a lot of maturity. It's not like she would have not known that at some level, as I'm sure we here ourselves will have reflected on such things. But what was interesting there is that at some level, the response to seeing, here's this painful, separate contractedness that one recognises one is creating, it seems voluntarily or intentionally, And some unconscious view being formed in relationship to that, that I must be bad to want to do this. There's something wrong with me to want to do this, to do this at all. And yet seeing, no, it's fear. Fear is the agent and was the agent in that particular experience 
that allowed not just the contraction to open up, but the underlying self-view and attitude that was really only semi-conscious, if not unconscious, that needed to be seen in order to be released, that in some way there was a self-judging or blaming for what was happening, going on. It's so important that we, as we encounter these patterns, as these, we encounter these reactivities, these places of our, our blindness, essentially, where we don't have enough steadiness and clarity of awareness to see that some of our reactivity, some of our behaviours don't serve us. That when we come into contact with, when we encounter this, we really bring a sense of understanding and perhaps and hopefully even forgiveness towards ourselves for our mistakes, for our failures, for our inevitable limitations, the fact that we can't get it right every time. In fact, often it seems like we can't get it right any of the times. And, you know, I, I think one, one teacher once described, you know, meditation practices as just a series of ongoing humiliations. It's like we keep trying to get it right and it doesn't happen. How embarrassing. That doesn't necessarily mean we're doing it wrong. The only way we can really learn, the only way we can really grow, is by entering into the territory that's beyond what we're already skilled at navigating, beyond what we already know how to do well and without any ripples. And we all have that territory. We all have that area that's beyond what's known, familiar, comfortable and already well worked for us. And when we enter into that territory, of course, we're bound to make mistakes. That's what defines that territory. It's somewhere we're going to make mistakes. And that's not a bad thing. In fact, it's crucial. The willingness to go there is crucial to our deepening, to our awakening. And there's a story that uh, expresses this for my, I find it rather delightful way of uh, looking at it. It involves a, um, a long-time Zen student who had the opportunity, and it was a rare once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to visit the senior master of his lineage. And he was going to have just a few minutes with the master, and he was full of awe and respect and deep gratitude and being given this time. And so he, he went to the, the master and he bowed. And he said, Master, Master, can you tell me what is the most important thing to cultivate, to develop? And the master looked at him. He says, good judgment. Oh, thank you, thank you. Uh, can you tell me, how, how does one develop good judgment? Experience. Oh, oh yes, of course. Oh, so obvious. Yes, 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 yes. One more question. Can you tell me, how does one get experience? Bad judgment. There's really no no way around that process. And if we can see it with a certain lightness, not that it's always easy, certainly it can be deeply painful, but to understand that that is the process, that as we see the places where we've got lost, messed up, fallen asleep, and even the places where we've caused harm to others and to ourselves, even if we thought we were acting intentionally at the time, If we were and it caused harm, we probably weren't aware of some degree of what was true or real in the situation. We were probably confused 
or deluded to some degree. And that's natural, that's inevitable, that's the human condition. And yet it's not a condition we're bound to remain in. And that's really the potential of spiritual practice, to to free ourselves, to liberate ourselves from that entanglement. And yet seeing our attempt to care for ourselves and what we love is at the heart of all of our action. For me, that is so important in allowing us to honour the journey, to honour ourselves, and to really honour that this caring impulse is inherent. Although the wisdom it needs to support it is something we have to develop. That's not inherent. We can be full of care, and some of the most horrific things that have taken place in the world have been done by people who thought they were doing what was good, what was right, and what served their sense of what was important. So there needs to be wisdom as well. And with that, an attitude that really allows and supports the developing of wisdom is an attitude that allows space for and supports a sense of uplift, a sense of joy, a sense of delight that more naturally becomes available or accessible to us when we're not putting so much pressure on ourselves, when we're not taking a position of judgment or criticism or blaming of ourselves for our limitations and our failures. And that, that judgment, that criticism, that blaming so easily arises for, for many of us and so easily leads to a loss of heart, to a loss of a sense of uplift. To a, it's like a deflation of that very very beautiful, very profound movement in the heart that draws us to practice, to give ourselves wholeheartedly. And joy in itself is an important factor on the path. It's listed as one of the factors of awakening in the teachings of the Buddha, one of the seven primary qualities to cultivate that supports the awakening, the liberation of heart and mind. And it's also a factor of, of the development of deep calm, samatha, the development of joy, something that allows the heart and mind to really rest in the depth of stillness that can arise for us. And it's also a factor in the development of the Brahma-viharas, appreciative joy, mudita, another aspect of joy. So these these primary elements of, of wisdom, of calm, of heartfulness, all of them draw in different ways upon what we could speak about as joy. And so... It's useful to look at what is it that enables or supports that quality to ripen, to become more available to us, to support us in our journey. And I think a primary place to begin with that reflection is just taking note of how our mind tends to relate to to the feedback we get from the world. Because feedback comes to us, it's inevitable. And the Buddha spoke of the way we are impacted by praise and blame, like worldly winds, things that they just come. We can't really control how much of one or another we get. But it's really interesting to notice what we do with them, particularly as Westerners. So just as a sort of reflection on this, I, I was once reading the um, <coughs> a speech by Kurt Vonnegut, who's a, a well-known author, <coughs> And he, he was once giving a speech to the uh, 
I think they call it the commencement address to the people graduating in Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT. Sort of quite a grand occasion, I believe. I've never been at one myself. But um, and he, amongst the list of interesting pieces of advice he was giving them, he said one thing that struck me. He said, "Forget all the criticism that you've been given. Remember all the praise." And if you can do that, tell me how. <laughs> because it's a great piece of advice in one sense. Not that we disregard criticism, but something in it sticks for us much more often than praise. And there's a, a classic example of this that happens certainly for myself and I'm sure for other um, meditation teachers where we're giving instructions in meditation and um it can often be that on the very same day, having spoken for 20 minutes or so to give some instructions and the guidance of the practice, the one receives two notes. And one note says, Oh, your instructions were sublime. Thank you. That was so helpful. That really just allowed me to move more deeply into my practice. You know, much matter. Da 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 da. And another one that says, Would you stop stalking so much in the end? You know, I'm trying to sit and be quiet and you're just going on and on. And literally, people will say that in the note. You know, five minutes is plenty. And it's like, so you receive a couple of notes. Like Maybe it's not on the same day, but sometimes it can be. And what do you do with those? Well, the interesting thing is to see how easy it would be to get scared that someone's going to be irritated if I talk too much and feel like, oop, I better shut up. Now, of course, you might be getting worried here and wondering how long I'm going to be talking today when you hear that. But it's more like seeing what tends to stick to us because we tend to somehow adhere to negativity, to self-judgment or judgment that appears to come from others. What is it that we remember? As Western as it seems, we're much more well-trained and more able to recognise and to focus on our limitations and what perhaps our shortcomings or failures are than to really honour our strengths, our beauty, our nobility. And as a result of that orientation, that habitual, in a way, distortion, I would say, we tend to put a lot of pressure on ourselves. We tend to feel like somehow we've lost or we don't have a natural sense of self-appreciation, self-respect, a self-honouring that's actually crucial to what we're doing here. It's because we honour and value what it is to be a human being, to what it is to be what we are, that therefore we would seek its well-being, its deepening, its liberation, our liberation. It only makes sense in that context. And yet when we don't trust our own goodness, we don't trust our own intrinsic wholesomeness, it's like there's a way in which we've interpreted our lives. We've, we've started to perceive or tell a story about life to ourselves that we've perhaps also heard from others that internalizes the experience of suffering, of pain, of discomfort, of dissatisfaction, together with messages of blame, with ideas that suggest that it's somehow my fault or that it's someone's fault and probably mine, that it was like this. You know, we, we have the sense often unconscious or unquestioned that something is wrong with me, that something needs to be fixed. You know, I can't meditate. Other people can, but me, no, it's not really possible. 
We can encounter that doubt, that undermining at times when we struggle. And we can fear that we're going to fail at meditation. So much pressure can be generated if we're trying to succeed at meditation. Because if I fail at it, or imagine that I've failed at it, because there is no failure in those terms, actually. But if we imagine that we've failed at it, it, it actually feels really threatening because it's somehow going to confirm myself, image or identity as a failure. Or as something unworthy or incapable of this practice, of this noble path. And that's so painful to encounter, to feel, to fear that being confirmed. And so we often try hard and, in fact, too hard to make sure that whatever happens in the meditation gives us some raw material for being able to confirm that I'm doing okay and that more fundamentally and importantly, I am okay. So I need to get my mind calm because that's what good meditators do. And my heart needs to be full of friendliness all the time because that's what loving spiritual beings are like. And then, well, some, you know... Some blinding flashes of insight would be pretty good as well, just to confirm I'm not an absolute, you know, ignoramus. Which is sometimes what we make of the teaching of ignorance. Blindness, I think, is a better word. We think, I'm ignorant, stupid. You know, we make it pejorative rather than simply, yeah, there's things we don't know, we don't understand. But if we know that's true, it becomes innocence rather than ignorance. It's only ignorance if we don't understand that we don't understand. Because we act then as if we do, and that's the problem. When we stop acting as if we really know it all, we start to become a lot more careful, a lot more attentive, a lot more sensitive, and it really, innocence is no problem here. Innocence is not an issue. Understood carefully and correctly, our lack of knowing it all is actually something that allows us to progress rather than any way limits us from doing so. And so much of our attempt to control experience is is about this, to get a positive reflection back. And yet we're caught in the hope and the fear, the hope that if I get it right, I'll feel okay and I'll be okay. But if I get it wrong, I'll feel bad and I'll be bad or not okay. And again, that really compresses the space for the heart to breathe, to feel a sense of lightness, of movement, of uplift, of joy. There's not much there for us when we're in that place. And we can fear so much the sense of some external judgment, which is where we normally, for most of us, got the initial message of not being okay, was because somehow when we turned up as a baby or a young child, a being, we, we got messages that how we were or what we did was not okay. And so we started to think that that means I'm not okay. That's what happens. And, you know, for so many it can be really challenging coming in to meet one-to-one with the teachers. An interview, you know, we're not mostly that scary. Most of us are relatively friendly, I would imagine. But um, nonetheless, and you know, I can say it can happen for me too if I go and see a teacher who I don't know that well. We sort of of get ready to make sure we do okay because we don't want to get judged. And, of course, calling it an interview doesn't help. It's like interviews are things, you you know, people are going to judge you. We don't call it just, you know, friendly meetings. But actually, that's what they are, friendly meetings. Somehow we use the language of interview. That's understandable. We might have a response to it. And yet we're only threatened by someone else's 
possible judgment of us because at some level we in ourselves carry that tendency. To the degree that we understand and resolve that tendency, free ourselves from it, criticism of others isn't threatening to us. We can learn from criticism. We might have something to understand in it. But it's not dangerous or destructive to a sense of basic okayness, well-being and self-honouring, which is the difference. That's often also why we and others at times we reject feedback that seems critical, not because there isn't something of value to learn in it, there might be, but because we're fighting against having a certain self-image imposed internally that negates, that undermines or that attacks our basic sense of okayness, of goodness, of value. And it's so painful when we're identified with such an image of ourselves. So I found for myself in my own practice at one point that I, I came up with a sort of a mantra that I found really useful that I would, when I noticed this going on, I would just say to myself, and it went like this, I'm not saying it's going to be useful for you, but you might find your own. For me, what I would say is, okay, I'd notice it out and I'd say, Stop believing your thoughts, that's mine, your thoughts about what you imagine other people are thinking about you. You know, And when you say it like that, it's my thoughts about what I imagine that maybe other people are thinking about me. One gets a sense of how constructed that is. It's really built a long way from anything I actually know. And so, yeah, just give up believing those thoughts, I would say to me. Give up believing it. Those thoughts of what I think other people think about me. Huh, okay. A teacher whose name I never knew um, once observed, what other people think of you is none of your business. And it's great. It's like, yeah, that's their stuff. That's their practice. That's their process. Let them deal with it. Even if it's going on for them, it's theirs. We don't have to take it on given that we don't know really if it's going on anyway, why bother? And another teacher, similarly unknown as to the original author, but another teacher said, and I found also rather delightful, um, you would spend a lot less time worrying about what other people think of you if you knew how little time they spent doing it. (laughs) You know, somehow we have the sense that other people are thinking about us, thinking about us. But if we notice what we're doing, we're thinking about ourselves mostly, and so are they. They're thinking about themselves. They're not thinking about us that much. And like saying, oh, that's the piece we need to attend to. How are we thinking about ourselves? Because when we somehow project it or transfer it into someone else, it seems like it's out there, it's objective, it's real, and there's nothing we can do about it. But when we see, oh, the truth is that this is something we are doing here we're thinking about ourselves, then we can start to examine it. We can start to look and see, is this useful? Does this really support what I'm here for, what I value, what I love in this process? And so looking at this this tendency we have to to judge, to be hard on ourselves. I think we could really serve ourselves to listen and follow 
the advice of a, uh, a Hindu monk by the name of Kirpal Vinanji, who's quoted in um, a book by Gavin Harrison, The Lap of the Buddha. It's a lovely, wonderful uh, Dharma book. And uh, he, he, he's recorded having said, this is Kirpal Vinanji, Break your heart no longer. Each time you judge yourself, you break your heart. You stop feeding on the love that is the wellspring of your vitality. But now the time has come, your time, to live, to celebrate, to see the goodness that you are. There is no evil, no wrong in you or in any other. There is only the thought of it, and the thought has no substance. You are dear, divine, and very, very pure. Let no one, no thing, no idea or ideal obstruct you. Even if one comes in the name of truth, forgive the thought for its unknowing. Do not fight it. Just let go and breathe into the goodness that you are. So can we sense what that might mean for us? To forgive our reactivities and even our judgments towards ourselves for the unknowing that's in them, the blindness, in fact, that they're expressing. To breathe into the goodness that we are, this caring aliveness that we can more and more consciously inhabit and get to know come to understand more deeply and more fully. To really let yourself know that there is suffering in life, there is dukkha, the Buddha pointed to it again and again, that we are careful not to pretend that this doesn't happen, that there is birth, ageing, sickness, death, and all of these are challenging conditions, hard to bear, that there is pain, sorrow, grief, lamentation and despair, The Buddha spoke of these as things we encounter that touch the life of our heart inevitably. There is the experience of our mind being exposed to that which we don't like, being separated from that which we do like or care for and not getting what we want. All this happens to us. Birth, ageing, sickness, death, sorrow, pain, lamentation, grief, despair. Separation from the loved association with the unloved, not getting what we want. Doesn't sound good, does it? Doesn't sound like a great advertisement for meditation practice, like come along and you get to have this. And yet what's so important in it is seeing that this happens. The first noble truth invites us to really take on that this happens. And it's not because of something you did wrong. It's not because of some kind of personal failure on your behalf that this happens. This is universal. The way and the flavour and the shape in which you, in which I, in which each of us encounter it is particular. But the fact of it and the inevitability of it is universal. If we can really let this in, we can see and perhaps understand how if we don't have that understanding and we're not generally given that understanding, as we grow and as we learn, if we don't understand that, we imagine that it's only like this because something's gone horribly wrong. And it's probably something about me. That's the way we tend to try and make sense of the fact 
of the first noble truth. But when we see it as just how it is, not something that we need to blame somebody else or ourselves for, then we can start to really sense that the, the issue of fault is not really the point here. It's a diversion. And to really get what it means to know that it's not your fault. You know, we all know that, don't we? We could all tell a child who was upset that it wasn't their fault, or a friend. But do we know it? Do you know that it's not your fault? Really? Do you know it? Like, can the part of you that doesn't really fully trust it, can it hear that? It's not your fault? What if you were to really let that in all the way? Of course, that's not something we can do as an act of will. But to allow yourself to be open to that possibility. That that understanding, it's not your fault. That that could penetrate to the very core and heart of your life. And to support that, I think it's really important to have a reflective appreciation of the context in which much Dharma teaching, Buddhist teaching, arose. And it was in a cultural context with a a basic psychological orientation that in some ways is rather different than our own. Of course, you know, greed, hatred, delusion, craving and all of that, that's pretty universal through any culture. But the way it shows up can be different. And in in Asia, in the East, where the Dharma was first uh, taught in terms of the, the Buddha's transmission of it, there's much more of a clear sense of community, of connectedness, and a sense of being part of something larger than is for many people available in our industrial or post-industrial society, our highly technologized and individuated world. And equally, there isn't a religious or spiritual culture founded on a conception of original sin, of basically, you're bad, that's somehow deeply rooted into our psyche, into our structures and into our culture. And so there's more of a natural confidence in in the intrinsic goodness of each being, of oneself and others, and a sense of connectedness to that, to the extent that teachers such as the Dalai Lama, when confronted with the Western tendency towards self-hatred or judgment, finds it incomprehensible that we should have that experience. Incomprehensible. And yet, for us, for many, it will be incomprehensible that somebody doesn't have that experience. So whichever place you might find yourself is fine with that. But what's why I'm saying this is because Sometimes the Buddha Dharma can come across in a way that seems to feed that tendency of ours because it's precisely intended to address what is the opposite tendency in its original audience, which is perhaps an excess of self-cherishing, of self-centering, or self—not um, self-centering. Self-centering is not a bad thing. Self-centeredness. So when we as Westerners hear the language of defilement, 
the effluence, you know, effluence sounds smelly to say the least. You know, that we're somewhere trying to purify the effluence. It's a literal translation of the outpourings as the best. Perhaps another word you could use of what the Buddha talked about, or defilements. Like, I'm defiled. You know, well, that kind of backs up what I was thinking along the line, you know, of something wrong with me. And yet, that's really not what's meant here. Or the um, the teaching, in a similar way that's sometimes talked about, on reflecting on the the impurity of the body or the foulness of the body, is another way it's translated. And that really can give a wrong impression of what's meant. In this impurity is about now when the Buddha talks about it he talks about looking at it as if it's a sack full of this kind of grain and that you know some there's some le- some lentils and some rice and some peas it's like noticing there's all these different things rather than saying there's some kind of negative judgment associated with it it's impure in the sense of not all of the same thing we tend to have this rather clean image at one level of the body as this nice tidy sort of surface appearance but on the inside yeah it's full of all these kind of juicy squishy bits and that gives us a different relationship to it, but it's not meant to be one in which we're rejecting it. And yet we can equally hear, and I was recently uh, reflecting on a, on a translation in which one of the, the, the deepest developments of the path was being translated and described as being revulsion towards one's experience. It's like revulsion, wow, it sounds like you really don't like that. Like you really want to get rid of it. It was being used to express the understanding that comes as we see how things are and what is it that allows us to let go. It's like seeing that it doesn't offer us what it is we imagined it offered us and that in fact trying to grasp hold of experience leads to a painful entanglement. So there's a natural releasing, a liberating that comes as we see it. But that doesn't mean that we are really being invited to look upon ourselves or our life or our heart with rejection or revulsion at all. And so to the extent that we might have heard such language, and I think it's pretty common that we do at times, we need to re-understand it, I think, in light light of the basic position we're starting from, which is a tendency to actually pull in the opposite direction to that which the Buddha was addressing using that kind of language. And I'm confident that if he was teaching today, he would actually, in the West, he would actually be using different language. And quite naturally, of course, the transmission of the teachings adjusts as it moves through different cultures according to what's really needed because it's a living response. And without needing to necessarily follow what I have to say on this, I think what's important is that you look and you listen and you sense for yourself where is your tendency to move and if it is the tendency or at times the tendency towards self-negation or a lack of self-cherishing then actually what one needs to bring in is really a lot of care and attention to that which is wholesome and beautiful in our lives and in our hearts there's a poem that speaks to this very well by Galway Canal he says The bud stands for all things, even for those things that do not flower. For everything flowers from within, of self-blessing. Though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on the brow of the flower, and to retell it 
in words and in touch, it is lovely. Until it flowers again from within, of self-blessing. As St. Francis put his hand on the creased forehead of the sow and told her in words and in touch, blessings of earth on the sow. And the sow began remembering all down her thick length, from the earthen snout all the way through the fodder and slops, to the spiritual curl of the tail, from the hard spininess spiked out from the spine, down through the great broken heart, to the sheer blue milk and dreaminess, spurting and shuddering, from the fourteen teats into the fourteen mouths, sucking and blowing beneath them. The long, perfect loveliness of Sal. So a fundamental element of our practice is reteaching our heart its loveliness, rediscovering the loveliness, the goodness at the, at the heart of life in all its forms and expressions. And learning to uplift the heart, uplift our hearts, that can so easily be weighed down by the challenges, by the struggles, by the pain, and by the, it seems, irreconcilable, incomprehensible realities of life, of how much suffering there can be in the world, in the life of one that we love, or in our own hearts. And it, we can't comprehend how and why that should be. But rather than somehow trying to change the nature of things, which is not something given to us as a possibility, we can learn to uplift the heart, to support the heart, rather than trying to simply control the world or ourselves. Connecting with joy, with uplift, is something that's possible for us as we understand more fully that our experience of the world is shaped by the way we give attention to it. And this is one of the fundamental and most powerful understandings the Buddha had to offer us. And it goes to almost everything, one way or another, in life and in practice. That the world arises in relationship to the mind, and the mind in relationship to life and the world. They are in relationship to each other rather than somehow objectively separated and having some objective reality apart from each other. And that wise attention, skillful attention, which is one of the, f- the, the, the factors of the path, the eightfold path, wise attention is not defined as something you're supposed to, the things you're supposed to look at, but the way of looking or the manner of attending that doesn't give rise craving, greed, grasping, that doesn't give rise to hatred, aversion, rejection, that doesn't give rise to confusion and delusion. So it's a manner and a way that we have to assess the way we're attending according to what effects are produced by that attention. And seeing that as we become more able to be present, we make choices, and this is perhaps... The fundamental choices of our life are 
how fully we attend to and the way in which we attend to what's arising, what's coming to us. And that this orientation, this this choice that we make available to ourselves through practicing, as we do here, is what allows the experience of life to transform, to be transformed. And so important as a practice to take time to acknowledge, to honor, to appreciate that which is beautiful, that which is lovely, that which delights our hearts, both within our own life and experience and equally around us. The Buddha spoke of the path as uh, Kalyana, lovely, lovely in the beginning, lovely in the middle, lovely in the end. Sometimes translated as beautiful in the beginning, beautiful in the middle, beautiful in the end. And there's something lovely about the aspiration for freedom, even if we're entangled in struggle and dukkha. There's something lovely and beautiful as we start to understand that it's possible for us and progress, develop, grow in the journey. And there's something lovely and beautiful in the in the fullness and the fruition and the in the experiential revelation and discovery of of what is possible for our human heart and life in terms of deepening peace, wisdom, compassion, freedom. And so something about bowing to this, to the goodness, to the wholesomeness in ourselves and others in life bowing to our highest potential and we may feel moved at times to to express that at the end of a sitting or to the Buddha or to something that speaks to us in our heart of, of what we're drawn to, called to, moved to and for myself it's something I continue to find incredibly touching those places of just connecting with what I appreciate just in a situation like this to be here the forms that may represent this to to practice some form of devotional practice doesn't mean somehow abandoning ourselves to the mercies or the or the vagaries of some higher being. But really honouring what it is that we love and where it is we see that expressed in the world. And something quite remarkable happens when we honour that which we love. And for myself I experience this in, in taking times to, to practice bowing and just honouring what the Buddha offered this world and what he, essentially what he offered me, making it personal and immediate. And when I'm feeling appreciation and love and gratitude for that, extending that to the Buddha or to my teachers, to companions along the way that I've had over the years. What I find is that having done that, when I have it accessible to me, when it's not there, when maybe I'm feeling a bit flat or dry or uninspired, I can turn to those places, to those people, or sometimes to the, at one level, lump of um, bronze. And I spent a lot of time finding that one, and when we found it, discovered it and checked with the other teachers whether we'd get this one, there was a real sense of, yeah, we like this. And I was really pleased to have found a Buddha for the hall when we hadn't really had one that had that, evoked that response for me until then. And there's a sense of like banking something with, with, with Buddha, the Buddha image for me. Like it, I, I offer it when I have it, and when I haven't got it, somehow it offers it back. It's really sweet how that happens. It's not quite as obvious as a bank, but um, there's something of that that can happen. And seeing things like this can nourish us. When we feel appreciation for a tree or a, 
a wild creature, a bird or squirrel in the, in the, in the garden. Just letting ourselves really extend that from the heart. And then you might notice at a time when you're struggling and that's not there, that seeing the tree or even just remembering the bird or the squirrel, one reconnects with the quality. And it's not artificial constructed there. There's a natural flow that takes place. And really understanding that so much well-being comes from what we give, what we offer, rather than what we get. That generosity and sharing is a foundation of practice, of well-being in the heart. And that well-being is the foundation for so much else that's possible for us. And even just small acts of wishing well for another or expressing our appreciation, just silently, quietly, with maybe no outward sign, our appreciation, if we feel that, for our companions sitting quietly beside us or walking mindfully, reminding us when maybe we're feeling a little less enthusiastic that, yeah, I can do this. How fortunate we are to have companions. How fortunate we are in so many ways. So giving attention to our good qualities, to honour, without that being the basis of some kind of inflation that trying to make ourselves good or better than someone else. It's not about doing it as better than, but just honouring what's good. The kind words, the kind deeds, the courage, the generosity, the restraint, the perseverance, the patience, the willingness to begin again that one has to express just to be here, that one has to connect with just to do what we're doing here. So many good things one could honour in oneself, and yet sometimes not easy. You know, If we were asked to make a list of ten things that need improving in ourselves, probably most of us could do it pretty quickly and wouldn't even be too embarrassed to read it out and tell everyone. Sort of think it was probably good for us. And yet how many of us could easily write down ten things that we're actually wonderful about ourselves. And having done so, should we manage it, which wouldn't necessarily be easy, how comfortable would we be to read them out and let everyone else know that we thought that this was true? That will be hard, I imagine. Don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to do it. <laughs> but just seeing how oh, there's obviously a way in which for many of us that's not the way the heart moves so easily it's really important to support ourselves, to include that, without, of course, denying or pretending we don't have places to learn and grow. Of course we do. But mostly, we spend enough attention on that. And that comes without having to try too hard. So the other is about finding balance. And that's what I'm talking about here, finding balance. To honour not just our good qualities, but our good actions, the times we've expressed or manifested them. These are our true possessions. These are what come with us in our life, through our life. And so far as that has meaning for you beyond this life, our actions are our true possessions. They're what come with us. And to honour that, to honour our good fortune, that we have food and shelter and companions. And to see that in doing so, In doing so, there's a sense of natural appreciation, a natural sense of uplift, of space that comes because we're not putting pressure based on some idea of needing to fix or improve ourselves or some identity that somehow we're not okay 
or that it's something wrong with me, or that it's my fault. That as we release that, there's a natural sense of space, of openness, and a a joyful, uplifted, a quiet. It doesn't have to be exuberant. Of sort of, it doesn't mean skipping through the garden, sort of making daisy chains. It's more just a sense of a an opening, a lightening, an expansiveness of heart. That that's quite natural. That's organic. That's intrinsic. In fact, to recognizing and trusting the goodness at the core of our being, and the really the beauty and the nobility of this path, of this journey that we're on, that we're engaging in here, in ourselves and together with each other. And so really, including this as an aspect of your practice, as a foundation for skillful practice, And to see how life can flow, how life can breathe, and how life can unfold unstoppably from this. So let's sit together quietly for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.